0: 4, beginning in verse 12. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. You'll find that on page 1016 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along. And we will be this morning, even though we'll spend some time in prayer during this message, going verse by verse. And so I think you'll be aided this morning to have a copy of God's Word out here in 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. First Peter, of course. Is a book that really guides uh, the church through suffering, a book all about the suffering church. And so there are many places we could have gone to for God's instruction. But I trust the Lord will teach us here and bless us as we consider these verses in First Peter four twelve. Hear now the word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Our Father, we pray now that you would come and help us to consider your truth, that we might learn about suffering as your word instructs us, that we would implant these thoughts into our hearts and enable us to... uh, live in this world of woe, and at the same time, even as we consider these truths and take moments throughout this message to pray for our persecuted family, that uh, these truths would work out in their lives. And so we want to do two things this morning, Father, even now. We want to hear from you. We ask you to speak speak to us, and yet we want to speak back to you the truths that we learn on behalf of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In The year 202, the Roman Emperor Severus issued an edict making conversion to Christianity illegal. Perpetua, a 22-year-old noble woman and a mother of an infant son, along with her servant girl Felicity, whom my daughter Eden Felicity is named after, defied the prohibition and were arrested as new converts to Christianity, they along with many Christian brothers. Perpetua nursed her child in prison and made arrangements with her mother to raise him. When Perpetua's father learned that she was to be thrown into the arena, he pleaded for her to recant and sacrifice to the idol of Caesar, and she would not. On the day of their execution, the men were taken first because it was forbidden under Roman law for men and women to be executed together. The men were sent into the arena with a bear, a leopard, and a wild boar. Among them was a man named Satirus, a Bible teacher. He was killed by the leopard. The spectators watched and mocked him, shouting, "'He is well baptized.'" Next, Perpetua and Felicity were stripped and sent into the arena to face a mad cow. They entered the amphitheater singing, as their biographer says, joyfully, as though they were on their way to heaven. The mad cow was not as proficient at killing as the leopard. He only managed to injure the women. The sight of these women being tortured by this cow became too much for the crowd, and they cried, Enough, enough, at which the women were taken to the executioner. Perpetua asked before she was struck down to retire her hair that had come loose, for loose hair in that day was a sign of mourning, and she did not want to give the impression that this was a time of grief for her. Then Perpetua called out to her grieving friends, Give out the word to the brothers and sisters. Stand fast in the faith. Love one another. And don't let our sufferings become a stumbling block to you. The first blow of the gladiator was not sufficient. He was a young, inexperienced gladiator. Perpetua cried out in pain and then took the gladiator's hand and directed the sword to her throat. Our sisters Perpetua and Felicity entered into the glory of their salvation. On March 7th, year 203, On January 19th in 1981, a group of terrorists broke into the SIL residence in Bogota, Colombia. They're kidnapping the Wycliffe Bible translator, Chet Bitterman. The communique that the terrorists read said, Chet Bitterman will be executed unless the Summer Institute of Linguistics and all its members leave Colombia by 6 p.m. February 19th. Not one member from Wycliffe left. Brenda Bitterman and her two little children waited 48 hours. On March 7th, the terrorists shot Chet Bitterman through the heart and left his body on a bus in Bogota. More than 100 Wycliffe members who were all translating the Bible in Colombia and the various dialects were given a choice of a new missions field, not one left. 200 candidates volunteered to resume Chet Bitterman's work. On July twenty-six, year 2009, the Washington Post tells the story of Talib Mashi, Throwing a Christian wedding for his daughter in a small town in Pakistan. The next day an angry Muslim neighbors began to knock on his door and accused him of desecrating the Quran. Though he denied this, his neighbors still beat him until he collapsed unconscious. The following day, Muslim clerics encouraged uh, Muslims to avenge the blasphemy by attacking Christians. On Friday, july thirty-first, twenty oh nine, a mob of five hundred Muslims gathered. When the Christians saw them coming, they dra- dropped all and ran. Soon, fire was set to 60 of the 80 Christian homes. Ahuba Mashi said they used trucks to break down the walls and petrol to start the fires. We saved our lives only by hiding in the fields until 3 in the morning when relatives arrived with vehicles to collect us. The children cried all night. And at the end, 11 were killed, 35 injured, and 45 women and children went missing Some speculating that the chaos was used as an opportunity to kidnap women and children who would then be forced into prostitution. The next day, in a nearby town, a mob of 3,000 men marched into another Christian neighborhood and began to shoot indiscriminately while the police force watched. Hamid Mashi's family uh, was locked the front door and barricaded themselves in the back room when they heard the mob approaching. Unable to get his family out, the mob set fire to their home, which all seven were burned alive. Would you die for Jesus? Would you suffer for him and receive torture for him? It's a hypothetical question for us, isn't it, We who live in America. But it is not for 400, 000, 400 million, excuse me, 400 million Christians who live in countries where it is dangerous to follow Jesus. In fact, uh, that 75% of the world's population, get that, 75% of the world's population lives in countries that are hostile to Christianity. So I wonder, would, would we make these same choices? Or would we rationalize denying him? Would we say, well, you know, I'll, I'll deny Jesus here because, you know, I don't really mean it. And that way I could go on and serve him. Or I I have children, and so certainly someone needs to take care of the children. So I'll, I'll deny that I know Christ, or love Christ, or follow Christ, that I might, you know, God will understand, of course, he will let me go on and live as a father and take care of my kids. You know, Perpetua, she could have walked out of the arena with her infant son if all she did was offer a sacrifice to an idol of Caesar. I wonder, what would you do? Felicity herself was eight months pregnant when she was arrested. She gave birth two days to her first child before her execution, yet she went willingly into the arena. Would you? And, and it's all, to be honest, it's kind of a trick question, because as soon as you say, yes, I'll die for Jesus, it might make the rest of your life look ridiculous. Because it is ridiculous, is it not, to say, I'll die for Jesus, yet I don't have time to read his word. It is ridiculous to say, oh, yes, I would gladly die for Jesus, but I'm certainly not going to talk to my neighbor about him. Or, yes, I will die for Jesus, but I won't love my enemies, I won't forgive others, I won't watch my mouth, I won't support God's work, I won't join his church. Yeah, I'll I'll die for Jesus, but I won't obey him. I won't do what he tells me. Because that's a question Christians must answer because of the suffering in this world, which I think raises the question, even as we perhaps have this whole service raises this question, why why are Christians suffering? And uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 is very helpful to explain why and how to endure it. It is, if you will, a little bit of a theology of suffering. This is, today will be the 13th consecutive time as a senior pastor I have I uh, remembered this day, now for 13 years, um, participating in an International Day of Prayer for the persecuted Church. And I have the same fear every time. And my fear is is that as we learn about how our suffering brothers and sisters are dealing with the world around us, that there will be a temptation in our own hearts to impugn God. And we say, well, wait a second, these are God's children, and isn't God powerful, and isn't God loving? And so why in the world do people have to live this way in North Korea, or this way in Pakistan, or in this way in dozens and dozens of other countries? Where is God? Why isn't he doing anything? Why why is he not helping and intervening? And so we, we, we look at the suffering of God's people, and rather than calling out to God, we think poorly of God. And the reason we do so, the reason that we have this temptation, is that somehow, especially in the West, we have gotten this idea that being a follower of Christ means your life gets easier. That there you get, you get, free, you know, you do this and do that, and you follow Jesus, and therefore he's just going to, you know, it's just going to be sunshine and rose petals for the rest of your life, and he's going to take care of all your needs, and there is no suffering, there is no persecution. That life is easy, and there is a form of a perversion of the gospel masquerading around that throughout our land and throughout many Christian lands. That following Jesus is a, is the, your ticket to not only heaven but health and wealth and ease in this life. And I'll tell you, my brothers and sisters, it is not so. The Bible is unequivocal that you and I and all who follow Christ should expect suffering. That's perhaps the first theological truth that Peter would want us to learn, that we should expect suffering. Do we not see that there in verse 12? Beloved, do not be surprised, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, Peter, of course, would be acquainted with trials. He was killed by Emperor Nero, who is perhaps one of the most wicked men ever to live upon this world. In particular, he liked to make sport of Christians. He would cover them in pitch. And burn them alive as human torches in order to light his garden parties. And so when Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, he may have that very act in mind that was taking place in his lifetime. And and, and so in light of such suffering, Peter wants to encourage them by saying, these things should not surprise us. When Christians suffer, when Christians are persecuted, something strange is not happening. Right? Peter says, as if this were strange. It's not meaningless. It's not rare. It's not uncommon. It, it's, 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 the hall, it's the hallmark of Christianity. Please understand, if you said, yes, I, I will follow Jesus, no turning back. You have signed up for the religion of suffering. Unlike all the world's religion, you, you, have, you chose the religion of hardship and suffering. Is this not promised throughout the Bible? Does not Paul tell us about it, and James tells us about it, and, and Peter tells us about it, and Luke tells us about it, and certainly Jesus tells us about it over and over again. He has promised, if you will follow me, you will endure hardship and trouble and persecution. Jesus, before he sends out the apostles on the preaching crusade, he says, listen, You're going out as sheep among wolves. And so before you go, you need to understand this is not going to be fun, fellas. They are going to stand in opposition to you. They hate me, they're going to hate you too. You need to know that before you go. And then he gets to John 15, and he says, by the way, they persecute me, and they're going to persecute you also. He gets to John 16, he says, listen, this world is an alien world. In this world, you will have what is it? Trouble. Not in this world you have money. In this world you have leather seats in the car. In this world you will have all the things, long life and prosperity. And ease. In this world it is an alien world and in this world you will have trouble. But take heart for I have overcome the world. What does that mean? Well, if you overcome the world, why will I have trouble? Well, Jesus overcoming the world is not saying, okay, everything's going to be easy and, and nice. It means that I, I will have victory. I'm going to have the nations. I will set up my kingdom. But, but before that time, some of you, follow me, are going to be shot in the chest, and left your body left on a bus. So Some of you are going to be burned in your homes. Some of you are going to be killed by lepers and gladiators as others watch and cheer. And all of you, to one degree or another, will suffer. All of you will be despised. That was promised throughout Scripture. And by the way, it's experienced throughout Scripture. You don't even need to look in church history. Just read the Bible. The Bible, particularly in the New Testament, is almost exclusively written by persecuted Christians to persecuted Christians. Right? And, 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 and it's natural because when the, when the world hears your message of Christianity and when the world hears you talk about Jesus, they don't say, well, geez, that's a swell idea. I really like that. The natural heart is at enmity towards these things, the Bible tells us. And so when you come up to someone and say, hey, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. He lived 2,000 years ago and his, in his death he has dealt with the eternal destiny of every person who lived before him and every person that lived after him and all who would yield their life to him in faith will live forever with him. They they are gonna look at you and say, wait a second, I thought you were a nice religious fella. You know, I thought you are all about being good to your neighbors and having a good kind of moral code and, and all the rest and you wanna do good deeds and act charity. But when you talk about like that, you sound like a fanatic. Right? You you don't even you're not you don't even sound like a fool. You sound dangerous. And do not think that that the world does not believe that way. Most of the world believes that way, and I would suggest that it's becoming more and more common, even here in the land in which we live. And by the way, so not only is persecution is promise and is it experience, it's the it's the very foundation of of what we what we believe. I mean, do we stand? On the foundation of suffering, do we not? The Son of God was mocked and betrayed and abandoned and tortured and judicially murdered upon a Roman cross, and then he gives us one of our two rights as Christians, and he says, listen, we are going to take this bread every once in a while, and we're going to remind one another that this is the body of Christ, right? This reminds us of the body of Christ, not healthy, not vibrant, not, not young, but the broken body of Jesus. And then we take a cup, right, and we say this cup is the new covenant, the blood, uh, the the new the blood of the new covenant, and we not the blood coursing through his veins in a healthy body, but blood that is spilt out upon the ground. I mean, that is we. This is the religion of suffering. This is the foundation upon which we stand. You, this is the suffering religion. The, The symbol of our religion is not a cushioned chair, and it's not a carnival tent. It's a cross. They killed people on that. Right? So don't be surprised. This is who we are. And if you think Christianity is sunshine and roses and the fiery trial comes your way and you are overcome by astonishment, you will think, how can this be happening? I thought God was in charge. You know, I've done this and I do that and I go to church and all the rest. Doesn't God love me? And you might shake your, your fist in heaven and you say, where is God when young mothers are killed by gladiators? What in the world is going on? No, Peter says, don't be surprised. Weep? Oh, yeah. Get angry? I think probably. Be surprised? No. This is not something strange. In fact, I'll tell you that grief, I think grief can never destroy your faith, but you know what can? Astonishment. Surprise can. Right? You, 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 You can bear almost anything if you're not shocked by it. I mean, some people say the grief is too much to bear. I don't think that's true. I think it's the shock of the grief that's too much to bear. Jesus knew grief, right? He, I mean, he went to the garden, and he, he's weeping, and he's sweating drops of blood, and, and he's not, not in the garden rejoicing. He's yelling up in heaven. He's in the dust, right? But he is not surprised. And so I, I, wanted, I just want to pray as Peter teaches us here. Can we we're just spend a moment in prayer? I'm going to ask you to pray, and then as our pattern has been this morning, and I'm going to close this in prayer, pray, the persecuted suffering brothers and sisters in Christ would not be surprised at the suffering they endured. Will you please pray now? Father, this, this world is a world of hardship, as you have taught us again and again and again. And so will you help get rid of this lie that is just permeating as Christianity, that it's supposed to be easy. Our Lord was persecuted, came to this world, and he was killed. Now he asks us to go into the world like him. And so our brothers and sisters who are suffering, will you please, Father, work in their hearts that they might not shake their fist in heaven and impugn you, God, but they would recognize that Christ has suffered for them and that now he asks them to suffer for him for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your glory. And so help them, Father, to bear the grief and the trouble without astonishment, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you see, the second truth that Peter teaches us about suffering is that we can be trained by suffering. He says there in verse 12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you or to train you. That troubles in our life, whether it be persecution or suffering, and even in this life, trouble and hardship, in which we'll all endure. Will, will, at least is intended by God to purify us, intended to strengthen us. In fact, Augustine said that trials come upon us to do two things. They come to prove us, and they come to improve us. So hardship comes to prove you. Right? We, so we, we say we really love God, but what happens when loving God allows, this loving God allows great hardship in our lives? What happens when the fiery trial comes and that we have, to, we have a choice to make, that we're going to follow Jesus, but if we do so, it's going to cost us. What happens at work when telling the truth, because you follow Jesus, might cost you your job? I mean, that, that's a test, isn't it? That's come upon to test you, to prove who you are. Where is your allegiance? What do you want? And God, God I mean, what happens when, 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 when standing up for Jesus and public school is going to cost you? And you have a decision to make. What do I value more, my allegiance to Christ or popularity? And God, I think, is constantly asking us questions, and I think he's asking the persecuted church this question. He says, are you in this religion for me to serve you or for you to serve me? Who's serving who? It comes to prove us. But it not only comes to prove us, it comes to improve us. And we could go to dozens of places in the New Testament that says, you know, this is what suffering does for you. On and on, it develops perseverance, it grows humility, it brings you to maturity, right? It helps grow us, it purifies us. The Puritans would often say that if all you have is sunshine all the time, what do you get? Well, a desert. All sunshine and no rain leads to a desert. And so there needs, yeah, we want sunshine, but there needs to be a little rain sometimes because that's where Christian maturity begins to develop, and 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 idols lose their power, and silly things that once occupied your heart don't occupy your heart some more, so much. I mean, in, listen, you talk to people who suffer, and you, you know, they're not they're not really preoccupied with the color of the paint in the living room walls, right? The people who are suffering are not really interested. Do do you know? Does the car? seat heater actually work or you know are the countertops are they marble or concrete or whatever goes for countertops these days they don't really care what they don't care about countertops and seat heaters and all the things that you and I it's like oh and that'd be nice to have a warm tushy and all the rest right and we're thinking about these things and we're preoccupied with these things and suffering comes along and it has a way of of writing the loves of our heart because they get disoriented and it comes to, to, to bring something out of us, and it's a greater and deeper light, uh, love of Christ, even as our brother Cody led us to pray, uh, uh, that Christ is better than wealth, and he's better than freedom, and Christ is even better than no pain, and he's even better than family. He's better than it all. It improves us. It tests us. Like it did in the 1680s when Scotsman... Richard Cameron was killed in battle. He was 32 years old. He had gathered his people for worship in 1680, and an army approached them there, and and the worshipers began to scramble, and Cameron turned around, and they killed him. And then they proceeded. As if that were not enough, they cut off his head and his hands and and intended to impale them upon the railings of their castle as trophies. They took them first to Richard's father who was in prison on trumped-up charges, and displaying the head and the hands before him, they asked him, Do you know these? How do you imagine that? By the way, when we talk about persecution, please don't, the persecuted church, don't think Muslims. Okay? This is 1680. These are other Christians, if you will, that are doing this. Evil is in all of our hearts. These men, they walk into a prison. They're holding the, the severed head of a man's body. And they're holding, holding the hands of a man's son before his gaze. And they ask him, do you recognize these? And he took them upon his knee and bent over them and kissed them and said, I know them. I know them. They are my sons, my dear sons. And then weeping and yet praising, he went on. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me. For he has made goodness and mercy to follow us all the days of our lives. Do you you think Mr. Cameron believed in the prosperity gospel? Do you think he's uh, he's supposed to get my best life now? No, he's languishing in jail on... Chumped up charges, confronted by the bloody head of his son, and he takes the opportunity to declare the faithfulness of God to him in the midst of suffering, who has asked nothing of him that he himself is not willing to endure. He takes the opportunity to praise God. You see, suffering is going to lead you one way or another. I don't care what kind of suffering is, by the way, whether it's persecution or or just generic suffering in your life. It will lead you one way or another. It it, it will make you hard or it will make you gentle. It will it it causes some to become bitter and cynical and angry. causes others to be tender and loving, that you can either draw close to God in suffering or you can run away. Those are your options, and God brings it upon us to test us, right? And so let's, let's pray. Let's pray for the persecuted brothers and sisters that the suffering would draw them close to God, not away from Him. Will you, will you pray that, please? Father, it is so easy to become distracted in this world and that we, we love the, the nice things you give us far more than we should and love you far too little than we should. And I trust this is not just true of Americans, but it's true of all people throughout this world. And we ask that it would not be true of your persecuted children that in their suffering they would see how great Christ is. And that he is worth it. That they would be echoing the words of Paul, who said that these these light afflictions are not worth comparing to the weight of glory that will be revealed to us in Christ. It is all light, no matter how severe, compared to the worlds you have prepared for us. Help us to believe that, and help especially our suffering brothers and sisters to believe that as well, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The third truth that Peter gives us is that it is right and good to rejoice in suffering. You see that in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, when Christians suffer for Christ, they're actually amazingly sharing in Christ's suffering. That that Jesus, the creator of the universe and the savior of the world, suffered. And then he called us to, okay, this is the path I walk. Now what do you do? You need to live a life of self-denial. And you too need to carry your cross and to... Follow me. This is why when he, he, he sees Saul on the road to Damascus, remember he says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this to me? And then later, when, after Saul comes to Christ and becomes Paul, he says in the book of Philippians, he says, I, I, I want to share in his sufferings. I want to fellowship with Christ in the sharing of his sufferings. That suffering with Christ can bring joy. Not, not that suffering brings joy. Suffering never brings joy. But the knowledge that when you suffer with Jesus, that your suffering is not in vain, but it's actually with Christ, that can bring joy. And Peter said you ought to rejoice in that. Peter not only said that, he did it. Acts 5, after being beaten, he left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. He rejoices. He said, Thank you, I've been associated with you in this way. He's not rejoicing in the trial and the beating, but he's rejoicing in sharing it with Christ. And so we can rejoice as Christians when, we are, when, we, when we, we're even insulted for the name of Christ here in America or far worse in other places, that we're walking the same path of Jesus. We're, we're following his way. We're suffering for him and with him. And so let, let, let's not be deceived that the absence of trial is what brings joy. No, at times, the presence of trial with Christ, that brings joy to us. And so I I, want to pray for them. I, I trust you do as well, that even as they suffer, that they would find joy in suffering with Jesus. Will you please pray that? Father, I I wonder how many times you actually teach us this in your Word. It was uh, Pastor Josh who reminded us of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. It was James who said, Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Again and again, we see it taught and we see it modeled. We pray that we would see it throughout this world in this day. That, that even in the midst of grief and pain, there would be joy. That there would be a, a joy that is, as Paul puts in Philippians, beyond comprehension. That would confound those who would seek to rob these Christians of their joy. And so fill them with joy, knowing that they walk the same path as their Lord, identified with Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you might think, well, how how is it that we can possibly have joy in suffering? Well, fourth, and almost last, is that we can receive help during suffering. We receive help during suffering. Look what he says in verse 14. I think it's an astonishing verse. It says, if if you are insulted for the name of Christ. So, by the way, now we're bringing it here to our country. Now, is that not true? Is this not where we live? It is easy to be insulted, to be a follower of Jesus. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, what? You are blessed. What a wonderful verse that would be to memorize. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Blessed, But here, well, you say, well, how is that possible? Well, look what he says, because the Spirit of God, the, excuse me, the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. So how, how do you find strength not to deny Jesus? How do you find strength to have joy and suffering? Well, here's the answer. Is that in, in that moment... If you're willing to to follow Jesus in this path of suffering, he doesn't leave you alone to suffer. That the spirit of God, the spirit of glory rests upon you. It is John Piper who says, God will not stand aloof as you die. Like a skeptical schoolmaster watching you agonize over your final exam. He will come to you in his spirit and he will sustain you. The Holy Spirit will help you die. The Holy Spirit will help you be insulted for Christ. The Holy Spirit will help you stand firm as you follow Jesus. I think this is the encouragement of this passage: is not that you escape trouble, far from it, but that you don't do. You don't have to be strong enough to, to handle on your, on your own. That God's going to come in and strengthen you is a lesson that Corey Ten Boom learned from her father when she told him how worried she was if the Germans found out what they were doing. And her father said to him, when you are going to take a journey on a train, do I give you your ticket three weeks early or just as you get on the train? She answered, as I get on the train. So God, he said, will give you the special strength you need before... Uh, to be strong in the face of death just when you need it, not before. And I think that's exactly what Peter's saying here. The, the promised, in the promised hour of greatest need and the greatest trial, God is going to give you courage and faith that you did not even know you're capable of. As someone has said, when suffering is great on earth, help is great from heaven. And this is something that I learned from the story of Felicity, who I introduced to you earlier. She trusted in this help, this servant girl that was thrown to into the arena with Perpetua. She was eight months pregnant when she was arrested. And she would not be allowed to be martyred while pregnant. Her greatest fear was that all her brothers and sister would be killed, leaving her, Felicity, behind to be killed with just common thieves and murderers. And so her ancient biographer explains how God worked. He says, as for Felicity, she too enjoyed the Lord's favor. She had been pregnant when she was arrested. As the day of the spectacle drew near, she was very distressed that her martyrdom would be postponed because of her pregnancy. For it is against the law for women with child to be executed. Thus she might have to shed her her holy blood afterwards along with others who were common criminals. Her comrades in martyrdom were so saddened, for they were afraid that they would have to leave leave behind so fine a companion to travel alone on the same road to hope. And so, two days before the contest, they poured forth a prayer to the Lord in one torrent of common grief. And immediately after their prayer, the birth pains came upon her. She struggled greatly in labor. One of the prison guards, knowing. And witnessing this, said to her, you suffer so much now, what will you do when you are tossed to the beasts? Little did you think of them when you refused to sacrifice to Caesar. And which Felicity said, amidst the throes of her labor, what I am suffering now I suffer by myself, but then another will be inside me who will suffer for me, just as I shall be suffering for him. My friends, he will never leave or forsake us, especially those who suffer. Paul knew this. His last letter he ever wrote before he was beheaded, he was in prison, Second Timothy chapter 4. He stands on trial, and he says, I stood alone, but yet not alone. Paul would write, at my first offense, no one took my part. All deserted me. All my friends, they, they ran from me. But, he said, the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. The Lord was with me in that trial. Was that not what we saw in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the one like a son of man standing with them? Is that not what we saw when Stephen, at the very moment he was being stoned, the Bible says his face was like the face of an angel as he stared into heaven. In the pain of suffering, there is the presence of God. So you say, well, where is God in the midst of all this suffering? Well, he's right there. He's right with them. He won't desert them. And so when we suffer for Jesus, whether it be slander in the United States or execution in Columbia or, 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 or any, anywhere in between, know that behind the curtain, if we could pull back the veil, we see the Holy Spirit resting so powerfully upon us. And so will you, will you pray that the persecuted church would know of God's presence this very moment, that the Spirit rests upon them. Pray, pray for them even now. Our Father, we we believe you are here with us. We believe your spirit indwells us. And yet, I think there is a, a special anointing for those who suffer for Christ. And so we ask now, wherever they may be in this world, that those who suffer for the name of Jesus would know your presence more than they ever have. They would know they aren't, as Paul said, I'm not alone. The Lord is here. The Lord strengthens. The Lord comforts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Of course, all of this is true only for those who are in Christ. And so let me say briefly and lastly that we should trust through suffering. Trust through suffering. You see in verse 15, he says, but let not... Let none of you suffer as a meddler or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, he says. So we're he's not suffering because we're a criminal or a jerk, we're suffering because we love Jesus. He's suffering because we're a Christian. As you read on in verse 16, he says, let him not be ashamed, All right? But let him glorify God in that name. So don't be ashamed of being a Christian. Don't be ashamed of being identified with Jesus. Glorify God in that name. Show the world what God is like in the midst of suffering, that God is gracious and holy and, 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 and faithful. He goes on to, to discuss unbelievers. There's much we can say here, but our time is up, isn't it? But it, notice he says in verse 17, for it, is ti- "...for it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God." And if it begins with us, note this question, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And verse eighteen, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So what he's saying is is listen, that that God is gonna judge to take care of judgment, right? God, in the final uh, um, events, God is going to judge those who deny Christ. In fact, if you read verse 5 of chapter 4, he says to them, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So even death doesn't, you don't, even in death you don't escape God's judgment. So all, all those who persecute Christians, God's going to take care of that. So what, what, what do the Christians do? Well, rather than seeking vengeance, rather than picking up guns and shooting back and all the rest, you notice what they do. They follow the example of Christ, as you see in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do what? Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So there's two things that they do. They trust God and they do good. I love that that picture of entrusting your souls. It's what Jesus did when he died as he prayed from the cross Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. It's not the common word for faith, by the way. It's actually a banking term. Entrust your souls. It means to make a deposit. And you only deposit in a bank that you can trust, right? You're only going to deposit yourself into the hands of someone you can trust. So why is it that we can trust God, even if his will is difficulty and hardship? I mean, why, Why can we say to God, as many of you have, I don't understand, but I trust you. How how do we put those together? How can you trust him that you do not understand? Well, as I've already mentioned, I think Christianity gives you the answer because uh, you line up all the gods, you put them all shoulder to shoulder, right? And there is one God among them all who has suffered. Our Lord Jesus, who has suffered physically, perhaps beyond what anyone has ever experienced. Suffered socially, loneliness, rejection, betrayal, my, uh, mocking, um, all the rest. He suffered spiritually, bearing the sins for all who would trust in him, alienated with God, uh, uh, abandoned by God as he calls out to him the cross. And, and so, you, you, ha- you listen, you have a God, we all have a God who we can go to, and we can say to that God, I'm suffering here. And there is only one God. Who can say to us, I understand what you're dealing with. I get it. I've been there. All, All these fake deities, they're all living in their glory and their ease. There's one God who actually came into this world and walked every path and bore every burden and will never ask us to do something that he himself has not done. There is only one God who says, you know what, I also know what it's like to be lonely. There is only one God who can say, I also know what it's like to be insulted and to be mocked and to be hurt and to be scandalized and be stabbed in the back. I, I get that. There is only one God who can say, I also know what it's like to face a painful death. Just one. And it is the only true God. It is our God. And because he has faced that painful death, we can be saved. Right? All we must do is entrust ourselves to Him. And He is worthy of that trust. And so can we end our time this morning praying that all who suffer for the name of Christ will continue to entrust themselves to God while doing good? And if you will also join me in praying that there may be some, even in this very room, who have never trusted in God never laid themselves in his hands, that they too might trust a worthy God and be saved. Let us pray to God. even in hardship and difficulty, Father, even in confusion and uncertainty, you are trustworthy. And all we have to do is look at the cross. Christ has come, and Christ has died, and Christ has risen. And he has done this to save sinners like us. So we pray for those here who would rather live their own way, rather trust in themselves, trust in their own wisdom, trust in their own goodness. We pray that you would dispel them of such folly, that they might come to themselves and realize there is only one who is worthy of trust, and it is not themselves. But it is the one who loves so much that he would yield his life for them, that they might be forgiven of sin. And that today, too, might receive everlasting life. And Father, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters once more today. We ask that they, their faith would grow strong in the midst of their suffering. As the tempter whispers in their ear to deny him, to curse him and die, as others have counseled, that they would dismiss such folly and say there is only one. Whom I can trust is one who has died for me. Give them that faith. Give them faith and give us faith that because we trust you not by our own goodness or righteousness but because of Christ's work and his righteousness, one day this world of woe and trouble and tribulation shall be over and all shall be glorious in their shall be no more pain and no more weeping and no more death and no more suffering and no more insulting and no more persecution, but glory and love and peace with you. One day we'll all meet there. And that day will come soon, I trust. Help us help all who bear the name of Christian to place their faith in that coming day for which we ask even now that our Lord would come and bring it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.